Hello and welcome to the Mongol Media Show. I am Mongol Media Editor-in-Chief Efe Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mongolmedia.net. Mongol Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. Listeners who like fiction can also buy our illustrated short story, Guide to Every City, written by myself and illustrated by Ala Al-Hasud. Guide to Every City is a guide for a fictional city inhabited by insects. The three different species of insect in every city, hopsters, sloggers and buzzies, live segregated lives on their isolated neighborhoods. The book not only presents a commentary on social divisions within urban life, it also satirizes contemporary travel writing. The fictional author of the guide, Steve McCracker, is a thoroughly unrelatable hipster who genuinely believes that the rest of the world did not exist until he discovered it for some over-designed travel magazine. You will laugh, you will cringe, in the words of Steve, you will never be the same again. In this episode, we are joining Root Radio's special broadcast on Palestine in response to Sheikh Jarrah evictions and a subsequent military operation in Gaza. I will be joined by Tasti Mahmoud, a Palestinian organizer and PhD student living in Australia, to discuss the shifting narratives and the strategies of occupation. Hello, I'm here with Tasni Mahmoud, and we are going to talk about the latest occupation of Gaza uh, with her. Uh, Tasni, perhaps you would like to introduce yourself first? Um, yeah, hi everyone. Um, so my name is Tasni Mack, and I am based in Nam, Melbourne, or so-called Melbourne in Australia. I am Palestinian uh, background, an organizer, and a PhD candidate um in the faculty of education uh what i can contribute i guess to to this current moment is um you know some reflections as someone who has grown up in exile so my father uh was born in gaza um in 1963 but his family is from yaffa so yaffa is um a Palestinian city in 1948, Israel, well, well so-called Israel, um, which is also uh, has been rising up in this uh, most recent uh, Palestinian uprising that's quite rare. But, um, yeah, they were um, expelled from Yaffa in 1948, like many other um, villages and cities. Um, and I think that's really important to center, given that, you know, um, tomorrow, 15th of May, is the, the 73rd um, commemoration of the Nakba. So, so, yeah, his family was expelled to Gaza, to Brej refugee camp. And over there he was born. And then in 1967, they were again um, exiled or they had to flee to Jordan. So in Amman, they also um, lived in a refugee camp. And it was only, you know, in, so in 1997, my parents left Jordan to New Zealand. Yeah, that's a, just a quick background. 
on um, kind of my family. But yeah, I do some research um, through my PhD, looking at uh, Muslim political subjectivities of the 9-11 generation, as well as um, through my positionality as a Palestinian Muslim. Mm -hmm. And you are quite active in Australia in organizing um, solidarity events for Palestine as well. Yeah, so um, I've been, so since, pretty much since um, the siege on Gaza was imposed, or maybe a little bit before that, so when um, Israel attacked Lebanon in 2006, mm -hmm. I was in year 10 at school. So um, I think that was the first kind of, uh, like, organizing involvement I had mm. during during that That's time. very young. Yeah, I think I was 15 or something. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so some of um, like community members uh, who decided to be active in that campaign told me to come along. So I would just go and um, see what I could do or, mm -hmm. or just hear what everyone had to say. So I had like some good insight. But then um, it, I basically graduated high school in 2008 in December. And that's when um, the offensive on Gaza began. So December 2008, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, I believe so. So that's when I was really a lot more involved, started giving speeches at rallies, uh, promoting, doing a lot of the social media, kind of mobilizing for Palestine. And um, during that time, a student for Palestine chapters were a lot more established across universities here in Nam. Um, then, like at the moment, they've kind of died down after a lot of us graduated and the events in Palestine haven't been so much to the forefront as they were around like um, 2008, 2009. And then I think after the Arab Spring or like the MENA uprising, Palestine organizing went down a lot here. I think maybe fatigue, like people were, um, yeah, there was, it became maybe fractured or like other causes became a lot more central, like the refugee issue here uh, is one that, you know, um, a lot of the left tries to be very actively involved in. Um, as well as, of course, you know, here we have the Indigenous struggle for decolonization. Yes. Always needs to come first because that, that's very immediate, you know, and like this ongoing genocide of Indigenous people um, is one that if there is energy and labour to be invested, that's where, you know, most um, organisers contribute. Mm -hmm. So really uh, took a bit of a backseat um, for many reasons. But yeah, um, so I was involved in Student for Palestine chapters. And when there are like crisis events happening in Palestine, then myself and a few others, we usually get together and develop a response. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you wanted to talk about, for example, now that you mentioned the uh, Indigenous cause in Australia, you wanted to talk about how anti-racist struggles across the world has become kind of like a, a platform for Palestine, like support for Palestine to organize together with. 
So maybe you can tell us a bit about like how the indigenous struggle, for example, in Australia or similar struggles across the globe has contributed to the shifting of um, shifting of narratives when it comes to Palestine. Yeah, definitely. So I think this is something I've um, observed as some have, where um, especially like my research employs a counter storytelling uh, methodology, speaking to politically active Muslims. And this was, this was very prominent, you know, across the interviews as well, where the, the way that they're, they're speaking through a, a register against Islamophobia, against anti-Arab racism, against, you know, Zionism, that is a lot more localised. So in our context, it, it's localised to be through the vocabulary of Indigenous struggle and, and through kind of making those links to Indigenous struggle and resistance. And I think it's also a, an opening in a way because of, you know, with, with Deere, de-radicalization and that kind of aggressive censorship and surveillance over Arabs and Muslims, you know, I think what's happened is that people have found more creative ways to to express the same kind of um, political ambitions. Mm -hmm. So centering Palestine within the broader, more energized fight against white supremacy, whether it's in the US or here in Australia. Um, it's not only strategic, but it's it make it has a lot of meaning because um, ultimately, yeah, we're fighting settler colonialism, uh, which is a framing that has also come a lot more to the forefront in in recent years with like the decolonial wave that we see. Um, in academia and then also in activist spaces, you know, a lot of people talking about decolonization, decolonize this, decolonize that. And so Palestinians, of course, have a lot to have, you know, they had this space to be present in that conversation. Mm, they've been in this for, for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, yeah, like, you know, Israel being an, an aggressor in the way that it is. There's, there's no way that, you know, it, we are kind of irrelevant to all of these, um, all, all of this momentum that, that is gathering again around decolonial um, thought. So I feel like um, that's really made a difference this time around, where, um, especially because like myself as an education researcher, you know, I pay attention to to this, and and I really do see that racial literacy um, has improved people's ability to receive what Palestinians have been saying for a long time. You know, because we've been we've been talking about like our oppression uh, through 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 language that is ours. You know, that's organic to our struggle, but it's not too different. Like racial literacy has really allowed people to to you know give it a fair hearing in a way um so when we're talking about apartheid now people understand that a lot more than if we were mentioned that even just like 10 years ago if we're talking about you know um israeli police brutality like the images 
it's very hard to separate them from like the images that we've been seeing around the world against police brutality, whether it's in the US, Colombia, you know. Um, I think we're in a very kind of anti-cop time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's always a good time to be in an anti-cop time also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I've heard uh, and I've read in quite a lot of places that the narratives about Palestine have started to shift. And a lot of it has been uh, with Mohammed Al-Khord's appearance on TV, for example, his kind of like boldness, uh, the statements that he makes to journalists. Um, to what extent do you feel like the narrative is shifting and how much further do you think it has to go? Yeah, so... Um... I'm writing a piece kind of reflecting on that. So I started with Mohammed Al-Kurd and maybe I'll read a little bit of what he says actually. Sure. Um, I think we have a bit of time to do that. Of course. Um, so in an interview for Vice, um, they've asked him, how do you prepare for these interviews with major broadcasters and why do you think they're going viral? By the way, um, he's I think 23 years old. Mm. So uh, just an incredible, like, fierce fighter, activist, revolutionary. But, yeah, um, this, this was his response. Um, so he said, I don't prepare for them. I get up, rub my eyes, and then I go on screen. There's not much scripting to any of these interviews that I do. Most of the time, like three bullet points, and I'll say whatever I want to say. And then from another section of the interview, he says, I wanted to make the joke that it's because I'm good, that it's because I'm good TV, but it's not. Most often than not, it's the fact that what I'm saying sounds unprecedented. A lot of people have been saying that I'm courageous. What I'm saying is a reflection of the Palestinian street. What I'm saying is something we all feel here. And then he goes on to say, um, we are making the mainstream, not just for violations of our human rights, but because of the vocabulary we are using, settler colonialism. People are finally getting it. People are finally getting to the root of it. And I think once people get to the root of it, they recognize that colonialism is not okay. Apartheid is not okay. So I feel like, um, you know, what we're seeing in, in the way that he's speaking I mean, it's no coincidence that he was a student at a U.S. university as well and probably heavily involved in student activism during that time because you can you can see the way, you know, it, it's a bit different to the legalism that's quite heavy to maybe a previous generation of Palestinian activists. Like he speaks with a kind of daring... Um, eloquence that is <laughs> that feels feels really you know um, yeah I think that there's something refreshing about the way he speaks and it, it's in yeah it's it's influenced by this this online culture that we have of activism like even if you see his Twitter and the way that he posts things they're very like immediate mm. very personalized um and i think that that's been quite effective like the viralizing is because people 
um, people relate to the medium, mm-hmm. uh, to the form, uh, and to the mode of um, communication, maybe. Yeah. And the kind of Israeli propaganda has also kind of started to find its own ways of trying to counter this kind of narrative that's emotionally resonating with people. And how do you reflect on how do you reflect on their responses? Yeah, definitely. So um, something kind of like a new development we've been seeing is that they're actually kind of trivializing social media. as the you know the the is it strongest army in the world has an issue with social social media i think i had seen a tweet of somebody saying that the israeli defense force was tweeting like they were some like uh angsty teenager on tumblr or something yeah 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 um they're basically trying to disqualify palestinian voices by saying that we are just like um sources of disinformation and mm. and because also with you know covid and all this kind of like people want to talk about facts in a way so uh, there's an appropriation of that too so it's trying to say no well this is just social media mm. fact it and and of course this is a typical colonial um tool of, of like in terms of like knowledge superiority and they're treating our perspectives, our truths as primitive, as subjective, as, you know, uh, non, non-impartial or objective. Um, and, yeah, and I think, you know, Indigenous, critical Indigenous scholarship has, has really contributed to that, to being able to counter that as well, because, yeah, this is what we're seeing that you know because you're a Palestinian then you 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 do not get to define or write your own history you do not get to define and speak your truth and and have that taken as truth um but of course uh yeah people like I said there's a literacy around these things so I think people have uh, people are very attuned to state propaganda, <laughs> especially like you know, with the with the Trump era, um, that like yeah, these kind of alternative facts um, coming from from Zionists are just they don't have the same punch that they that they did. There is uh, there was this article that Adnan Delalic wrote for us, I think two years ago. It was when um, Handke had won the uh, won the Nobel Prize, and in that he says something quite interesting, which I've been thinking quite a lot about recently uh, with with the events in with the occupation of Gaza, with the recent invasion of Gaza, and the um, and a lot of the propaganda that's not just made by kind of directly like organs that are directly related to the Israeli state, but also to like a lot of people who are kind of sympathetic to it and are kind of like willing to defend its actions uh, online. Uh, He talks about how like genocide denial does not simply function by denying genocide. He kind of talks about how it also works by kind of 
making you question by gaslighting by kind of like whataboutism saying like oh you're concerned about so and so but that means that you, you're probably not concerned about this and this and it just keeps making you question yourself uh yep. even as people who have like witnessed this firsthand who don't need to be convinced by evidence it has a way of cornering people into a place where they doubt their own experiences so yeah. i think it has sophisticated it has come to like a point of ripening in that aspect it doesn't just directly confront but it creates kind of obstacles for to obfuscate what's going on yeah absolutely yeah and and um of course you know israel is is very kind of um uh, sophisticated in doing that and, and they invest a lot of um resources into into this kind of hasbara mm. work um but i think for me like why i look at the way that i mean that's where i see possibility in the way that it's not being effective of course it's effective in many ways like the it's effective enough that biden can stand up and you know point blank say that israel has the right to defend itself and and that's the official position i'm it's effective enough that you know um scott morrison just i think yesterday or the day before our prime minister said that um i, I think there was like a um a girl who burnt the israeli flag at one of the protests we had mm. week not not here in a different state and he basically came out and said that uh in australia everyone needs to live in peace and tolerance and um don't bring the troubles from over there into this nation and he said that you know uh, he he's committed to the two state solution and that you know he's calling for the escalation or something like this so it's basically you know for him to be able to say that he he's drawing on these like islamophobic tropes uh, these anti-palestinian tropes of Palestinians just have and Muslims just having this kind of senseless rage um that is foreign that has no place in any you know that, that is a delegitimate like it rather than yeah so that's the official narrative and that's what the dominant discourse but for me i think you know i always like to look at the way that it doesn't completely totalize because yeah that that's where we have these kind of uh potentialities in a way what yeah. isn't totally totalized well the the zionist narrative uh, I mean, uh, yeah like you and i are talking we're talking uh, independent of zionist narrative you yes. know we and internalized it we don't regurgitate it i think so, one of the important things that it has yeah. that has happened in terms of like uh, mm, pro palestine activism is that it has kind of matured in terms of um kind of rooting out anti-semitic elements or kind of just re-educating people about uh the difference between anti-zionism and anti-semitism so when israeli propaganda starts to hit back with things like oh it's like anti-semitic to criticize israel uh 
they have a lot less ammunition to do that kind of stuff right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think so. And also, you know, um, there's also been like a shift in terms of because of the because of heightened uh, uh, white supremacy. There's been more so because of like this shift to far to the far right there's been more collaboration between people fighting against anti-semitism and people fighting against you know arab racism and islamophobia yes. so so it, it's kind of like to 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 for zionists to just come and assert that just is very nonsensical hmm. you know i think especially with um white supremacist attacks on synagogues, on mosques, like, you know, the flip side of that is that people unify against this common threat. Exactly. And so when, when they do unify in that way, how, how will you then, you know, come to Palestinians and say you're, you're anti-Jew? Like, exactly. where? How is how is the Palestinian the one that's anti-Jew when when Jew, Jewish organizations in the West are very much saying that it's white supremacy that is? I think this ties us into the other subject that we wanted to talk about because this question of anti-Semitism is often raised in contexts where people who are not Palestinian are speaking for the Palestinian movement. And a lot of, especially, I mean, let's face it, kind of white lefties have a tendency to use Palestine as a vehicle to express their own anti-Semitism. And um, I think uh, when I was earlier referring to the kind of uh, the, the maturation of the pro-Palestine or like the solidarity movements, I was kind of mainly thinking about these people are starting to be confronted more and more uh, mm. because it is not their place to 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 speak in like to speak about or to i mean speaking about to a certain extent but acting as though they were the spokespeople of these movements yeah definitely the confrontation of these people has really taken this conversation forward yeah 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 i, I do see that maturity and also you know that the, there's a history here because um, a lot of like the anti-Semitism in the Arab world was was also reproducing, uh, you know, European anti-Semitism. So th there's that kind of um, relationship with anti-Semitism too. That that it it's not it's not necessarily our the way that we've defined or expressed our Palestinian you know, uh, position. Uh, it's not the way that we've spoken about our oppression. Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, the maturation, I think it's influenced by a lot of things on this. So uh, that we've got some slogans such as, you know, um, Zionism, uh, no, which one? Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. There's, there's a lot of extensive work done done there, particularly where BDS is be, is facing, you know, being outlawed in some European countries and, and mm. in the US. 
as well. So there's been like very staunch effort, a very vigilant effort to to make that case because really it's a legal threat. Yes. So I think, you know, Palestinians and supporters of Palestine who are really invested in, um, in protecting the right of BDS, the freedom for, for BDS to be able to operate, they, yeah, they, there's no room for, for that kind of like anti-Semitic vilification coming out from our movement. Yes. And a lot of yeah. these kind of uh, predominantly white figureheads who kind of assigned themselves the role of being a spokesperson of like the Palestinian struggle, they also have a lot of problems in terms of understanding other Arab causes as well. I'm thinking mainly about the Syrian revolution. Uh, they have kind of, they have a way of clinging to um, antiquated kind of anti-imperialist narrative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, because, um, yeah, whether it's their anti-Semitism or other tropes that they deploy, you know, it, it, it's, it's still stems from this kind of like, you know, I, this, I'm the European, I'm the one that's most enlightened, I'm, um, and then, yeah, we see that. So with Syria, for example, David Miller, who is um, at the moment being investigated for anti-Semitism because of um, some of the kind of comments he was making on UK campuses that um, neared on conspiratorial. Mm. Um, yeah, but because that's under investigation, you know, I'm not sure what the outcome of that investigation would be, but who, many, many. Who is David Miller? I, I don't know who he is. Ah, uh, he's a UK professor, so he's one of the um, UK propaganda professors with the uh, in relation to Russia uh. and so from that group that is from those UK professors. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, but he's also at the moment um, being investigated for anti-Semitism because of um, comments he made that Jewish students are complaining that basically he's um, conflating all Jewish student groups with Zionist groups. And, and many of them ideologically probably are, but at the same time, they are also Jewish shooting groups hmm. so it's tricky i think and i i do think that he he is crossing the line hmm. but he but he's yeah being investigated for that but it's relevant to the question that you're asking because yeah i don't think we can separate these things you know whether it's his like smearing of the white helmets um the smearing of Syrian revolutionaries as like Al-Qaeda, et cetera, that we see from the left. Mm. Sometimes not just, not necessarily David Miller. That also comes from, yeah, from racism. And anti-Semitism is racism. That racism that, you know, doesn't allow the victimized to define their own 
realities. Mm. I think it yeah. works. In, I think I think there's something really malicious about these kinds of strategies as well, because um, I have seen a lot of people who have like a very good politics about the Syrian revolution, kind of turning pro-Israel because Israel is fighting against the Assad regime as well. I have seen people kind of I don't know who are critical of people supporting Palestine because they assume that. Uh, supporting Palestine. There was this thing that was for, circulating around um, Twitter and then it kind of got screenshotted into other social media as well. Somebody saying that, you know, if you care about Palestine, then it means you don't care about Uyghurs. And here in Turkey, we have, like I was just saying, saying earlier before we started this, uh, before we started recording, there's a lot of discourse about how and Palestine is a uh, Muslim cause. And if you're supporting Palestine, then you must be pro AKP. It's kind of like a series of connections yeah. that are just kind of the more you yeah. add to the chain, the more ridiculous it starts to get. <laughs> and then there's people who are trying to respond to these by saying, oh, no, no, like the Palestinian cause has nothing to do with Islam, which also kind of also misses the point. Uh, because mm, when mm. people's kind of places of worship are under attack, it, uh, there is no point in trying to like force a mandatory secularization on people who are trying to defend their places of worship from an invading force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like this these kinds of takes come from like a very narrow-minded vision of the world that can only see their causes being supported if it's attached to some kind of a state power, you know? Like mm. If you're against this state, then you must be against that state, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like this, um, yeah, all it's done is a, a dichotomy, like it's dichotomous thinking. Um, it's also, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's very immature. There's no nuance, there's no criticality to it um it's very yeah totalitarian because it, it what it's seeking and that's kind of what totalitarianism exactly. is right and it's I think what it's, it's seeking is yeah oh uh, no please go ahead yeah i was just gonna say it's just seeking like these it just wants parity no, no complexity no diversity no you know, it's it's really dangerous. And I think, like, you know, the rise of the far right, the populism has really contributed to that. I, I, I feel like it has a lot to do with kind of like emotional detachment as well. Because, you know, when we were talking about earlier about people who kind of want to project their kind of like whatever anti-imperialist anti-semitic like quote-unquote anti-imperialist but I, i'm kind of skeptical about the quote-unquote things for a while but uh, <laughs> they're trying to inject their anti their, their, their personal anti-semitism into other causes or their personal support for totalitarian regimes into causes a lot of these people are as kind of irrelevant as like Roger Waters, for example, which I can't yeah. <laughs> stop finding amusing. And these people are like so detached from, from the emotional aspect and from the personal aspect of uh, the devastation caused yeah. by these things that 
to them it's just like playing risk you know it's just like mm -hmm. looking at this kind of silly little map and like putting their little pawns and their like cavalry and their soldiers on a map it's like yeah. a geostrategic game but for the rest of us who are living in the periphery that they're looking at through a telescope like this is our lives yeah absolutely yeah I, and i think that's where you know the, they're inhabiting like a kind of colonizer way of being because that that's what they're doing you know being a colonizer there's that kind of superiority um making other knowledge systems other truths inferior um positioning yourself as the umpire um yeah all of that comes into it and and i think yeah we we, we see that especially like syria i don't think had its fair hearing hmm. there's a lot of reasons to that i think it was, you know the the syrian uprising was very close to the early years of the war on terror um so th those kind of uh, um, anti-Muslim tropes were very loaded and hostile by, by Western states. And then, you know, Assad could successfully and get very successfully um, use them again to, to, yeah, to repress and, uh, and to dismiss any legitimacy of the uprising. Of course, he was famously like uh, able in his propaganda to at once pretend that he's like the only secular force in the region that's fighting some kind of like fundamentalist insurgency, but also call yeah. on to like um, Shia resistance uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> in just as much of the jihadist terms that he claims his opponents are doing. Yeah, yeah, it's very ironic. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and it's always kind of like heart wrenching because, you know, um, if we're talking about political uprisings, um, you know, the Syrian one was one that much earlier than, you know, in Iraq or Lebanon or, you know, the George Floyd uprising. Mm -hmm. The Syrian one was right at the beginning. And, then, and of course, ongoing, but right at the beginning of the last decade, mm. you know, um, compared to a lot of, like, I feel like if it happened now, would have been different circumstances. Then I also think that what the, all these lessons that we have learned in the past decade were not just kind of, uh, we're not just intellectual. I, I don't think we would be at the place we are at now if it hadn't been for the yeah. Arab Spring being a litmus test for a lot of people about reconsidering what their ideological position might be yeah that's true yeah 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 i think that arab spring really shifted things um in a way that has impacted even what we're seeing now like mm. the jurisdiction uprising especially that you know uh, there's there's literally no saviors <laughs> so um that hope of like an Arab Spring that would restore some kind of dignity to be through governance of Arabs, Arab states. You know, that's that's nowhere to be seen. Like AE normalization, you know, CC. I don't think I've seen any state 
I'm sure he's made some comments. They haven't even come into my feed. Like he's he's so irrelevant. He, you know, Egypt is like there's absolutely no expectation from any of us that mm. there would be, uh, you know, support. And so Palestinians on the ground, very much conscious to that, are, are fully taking matters into their own hands. Mm. There, and of course, you know, this seeing like Black Lives Matter and the way a lot of the um, education that it's provided to the rest of the world, to the third world, and the way that the third world looks at the US, if the US can't protect its own democracy, like what what human rights, (laughs) uh, you know, role is it going to play? Like people uh, um, every, and that's, I feel like, why everywhere, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Colombia, whether it's Myanmar, mm. Hong Kong, as well as, you know, Palestine, pe- people are just like, we, yeah, we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to confront militarized policing. We're going to, you know, push through because what else is there? Mm. I think a lot of uh, this aspect of it about the um, about the outside world kind of being uh, either unwilling or too detached or incapable of kind of uh, having a meaningful contribution. I think that has that has a responsibility in the rise of uh, the popular discourse now, like of both sides. And mm. that's been something that a lot of people I think. I think a lot of people are kind of intimidated even by thinking about Palestine because they feel like this is kind of like a minefield that they, I think this, this is the kind of thing that uh, counter propaganda has been really successful in. Like instead of kind of directly confronting and like, you know, uh, I'm sure they do this in certain uh, outlets as well of like calling people barbarians of like kind of plugging kind of like obviously Islamophobic tropes. They do this in a much more indirect way of saying, oh, maybe I shouldn't have an opinion about this, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Confusing, I suppose. And that has led to the kind of rise of the both sides narrative. Yeah, yeah. Well, that this whole thing of, oh, this is too complex. We saw mm. that with, yeah. You yes. know, a lot of people, even a lot of Arabs were like, it's too complex. And and Syria, of course, it's messy and complex, but it's not hard to take a position that is, you know, anti-Assad. Like that's, you know, a basic, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and kind of the same, the, the same uh, response is being provided by Palestinians on the ground saying mm. it's hard to take a position against this, Kind of these genocidal logics, like wanting to expel almost a thousand uh, people um, with the eviction of Sheikh Jarrah. Mm. So, like the the when you think about it, just anyone, and this is like basically the, what Palestinians have been saying in terms of Nakba the way that we kind of explain it is, yeah, like being kicked out of your own home mm. and someone moving into your home. 
So to see that, you know, being done in that very tangible way, um, again, Palestinians have been saying, where's the complexity in that? Mm. But yeah, um, like again, both sideism is a term that, that we use to push back. What about is, yes. is a term we use to push back. Like we have all these terms now that actually uh, I think they've been coined very recently. Um, like the, yeah, for example, during the George Floyd um, riots, when um, when a lot of the, you know, liberal commentators were saying, you know, both sides need to yeah, yeah. stop the violence and, and this kind of thing. Um, you know, I think that's where we saw that both sideism become a term. I, I don't know, maybe it was earlier than that, but I, I feel like I've come across it just recently, like yeah. as an actor. And that position tends to kind of uh, present and market itself as being the reasonable thing, you know, like uh, mm. if there's a conflict, then there's two sides to it. So the, it presents itself yeah. as like any other position that you might take will be uh, will be fanatical. Mm, yeah, and um, with with the kind of um, uprising of nineteen forty eight areas in Palestine, that's where we're seeing you know the civil war trope being deployed as well. Just you know this time around, which I feel like that's not very common as well. Like I don't think we've ever usually civil war. You know that's something people say in Syria or Iraq, like in, in relation to Syria and Iraq, but not really for, for Palestine. Um, so this, because there are confrontations between Israeli settlers and Palestinians who are refusing the crackdown and, and the kind of death to Arabs pogroms that are happening, you know, to obfuscate, it's making it like trivializing it and try and making it not a conflict between colonizer and colonized settler and indigenous. There's the both sideism of, oh, you know, it's like Jews and Arabs are in a civil war. It's it's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, I thought that the new kind of civil war kind of discourse was because. Um, there's kind of like an unprecedented amount of lynchings and things going on of like Israelis yeah. attacking like a Palestinian or Israeli citizens. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I thought that's where the civil war narrative had come from that because like now it's become an internally Israeli issue as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what, that's what I mean. They're saying that it's a, in relation to 1948 Palestine areas, that's where they're using the civil war discourse, um, not in relation to Gaza, but in relation to, yeah, like the confrontations between Israeli settlers, like mobs, mm -hmm. and Palestinian protesters who, uh, there there are confrontations between them in some of the streets. Yes. Yeah, instead of making it uh, like uh, identifying the aggressor, the civil war discourse makes both of them seem irrational. Mm. Both of, them, you know, 
just have a hatred for each other or something. And it's it's not just confrontations on the street either. I think I saw some videos of kind of um, Israeli mobs breaking into people's homes and such. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, the lynch. Yeah, the lynchings. Yeah. So, like, the question of victimhood is kind of, it seems to be to be undeniable here. Yeah, yeah. But that's why, you know, I started with saying that I don't think um, Zionist talking points have a lot of, can carry a lot of power. I mean, mm-hmm. they can... Uh, the one talking point that they use, which seems to be carrying uh, a lot of power, which seems to be drawing people into this kind of, oh, both sides are wrong uh, kind of discourse, and this is something that they have been doing for like uh, for a long time, for like, I guess like yeah. 15 years. The idea that Hamas is using civilians as human shields. Uh, yeah. So like every time uh, they bomb, uh, they bomb Gaza, they're actually trying to hit military targets, but Hamas manages to insidiously place children to those places. Yeah, yeah. This is that um, almost gives an impression that yeah. like uh, if you push it to its logical kind of limit, it would give the, the impression that Israel is almost liberating the uh, the residents of Hamas, uh, the residents of Gaza from the cold grip of Hamas with some strange fantasy. Yeah, 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 exactly. It is a fantasy and a very Orientalist, very Islamophobic uh, one. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it's uh, very sinister to, to be able to say that. And it's really kind of disappointing the fact that we don't see mainstream media actively dispelling that kind of dangerous, atrocious um, suggestion mm. because it, it's detached from any reality on the ground. It, it's, yeah, it's like post-truth before post-truth. <laughs> It just kind of relies on this ridiculous assumption that Palestinians who are living there just give their firstborn to Hamas as kind of like a human offering to like Israeli bombardment. It, it... Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, that, yeah. They yeah, just kind of voluntarily it's, it's give orientalist. their children away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very orientalist. Like there's obviously history there in terms of the way that Muslims are perceived by, by the West mm-hmm. as like, yeah, these, you know, uh, sword kind of wielding, yeah. Or, or as just are completely unable to make decisions for themselves and kind of, kind of like these horror movie monsters that kind of possess humans, but it's still like one alien, like invasion of the body, body snatchers or something, you know, like, oh, I will do everything for the common good. I will give my children to Hamas, so... You know, they can place them in a place where they know that Israelis are going to bomb. Like, even if you think for like a second, just think to yourself, like, how would the system work? How would the system of yeah, Hamas yeah. taking children and putting them in places where they know they're going to be bombed? Like, mm. okay, maybe, maybe they'll do it once, maybe they'll do it twice, but for 15 years or so, like, how can they systematically have a system in place? Yeah, yeah. To uh, arrange and- something like this. Yeah, and of course, like, this also contributes to the permanence of the siege on Gaza. Yeah, that was, you know, applied when Hamas was elected. Yeah, uh, because that that's part of why they've created, you know, why, why they've manufactured these um, 
tropes as a way to kind of, yeah, they draw on the fact that Hamas was democratically elected to show that, yeah, pal- oh, look, Palestinians are all supporters of terrorism and and that, that's what kind of justifies the collective punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's very dangerous and it's really just atrocious that, well, the international community has allowed it to go on for so long. But, um, yeah, as we know, like, there's no hope coming from Europe or the U.S., or Australia, like here in Australia, something that a lot of us have been very active to bring to the forefront is that, like, how can a settler colony like Australia, one that also deploys similar tropes, uh, similar racist logics against its own Indigenous people, you know, be be in any way expected to have a, a different um construction of Indigenous Palestinians. So something that our governments regularly say is that they have a, a, like a, a an entrenched friendship with Israel. So they always say Australia and Israel are very close culturally, etc. So our response is always yes, of course, because what is shared is settler colonialism. Um, for example, here, uh, uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody, that's one way that sophisticated genocide um, continues on. So Indigenous people are the most incarcerated people in the world, actually. And um, the age of criminal responsibility here is 10 years old. So it, you know, Indigenous children can be held in prison, in, in you know, adult kind of prisons in some places um, from the age of 10. Um, and that has contributed uh, to cycles of, you know, criminalization. Of course. Very poor life outcomes and also deaths in custody. Um, for example... Uh, just in 2019, there was one coronial inquest in an Aboriginal death in custody of um, Aunt Tenya Day, who's, uh, I think, f- around 40-year-old or more um, Aboriginal woman who was on a train, um, you know, just riding to go to her, to visit family, to visit one of her daughters, I think it was. And um, she was just, she had slightly been drinking. So um, the ticket inspector, and here we have like trained ticket inspectors have a lot of powers to crack down on fear evasion, (laughs) Uh, which is another kind of vehicle to criminalize youth, particularly, you know, indigenous and black and brown youth. But yeah, um, so he basically called the police, even though she was not, she was basically, she was just sitting, like she was just off on the train and then she was getting ready to get off on at her stop. But he called the police and that led to a series of incidents 
where she was put into a prison cell and then she had a fall in the prison cell and they didn't call, they, they didn't monitor, they didn't call ambulance, nothing, and it led to her death a few hours later. So that's kind of what, what we try to, yeah, push, push against, fight. And if we're not seeing like progress in terms of just basic changes, uh, families of people like Tanya Day, like others who have had um, deaths in custody, have provided very clear, succinct um, ways that no more deaths in custody need to happen. But if we're not seeing, you know, Indigenous, I, I mean, if we're not seeing Australian government even protecting the lives of Indigenous people here, like what? how would we expect it not to endorse you know, a state like Israel. Of course. So, so I think there's, you know, I think people are very cognizant to that. And um, a lot of our Indigenous brothers and sisters have uh, come out with very fierce statements of solidarity because they see, like, you know, they see what they experience. Mm-hmm in the way that Israel um, is treating Palestinians. It, it's it's very intimate to them, whether it's yes. a massacre, whether it's, it's, yeah, it's colonial violence. I think that's the most important kind of uh, international community response that can happen, kind of connecting with people who have like a, a kind of, emotional affiliation with the question as opposed to it just being kind of like what we were talking about this like detached kind of trying to determine who's right and wrong kind of thing instead just kind of being able to relate to to this problem yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's about kind of this awareness that yeah a threat to justice what's that saying a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere Uh uh-huh you know, you know that saying. Oh, I haven't heard it before, but yeah, it makes oh, okay. a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's like, uh, of course, we're all in intimately um, interconnected, and you know, with uh, in the US, that there's the bill to kind of um, cut or condition aid to Israel. And I think they they can. I think they might have some success to, in reducing it. Mm. I don't think the bill will pass because, yeah, it it threatens you know American empire interests, you know military industrial complex. Maybe we can take heart in the fact that there are more and more. I mean, it's kind of like crumbs, but there are more and more um, senators in the U.S. who are kind of vocally against Israel. Yeah, definitely, because uh, they were voted with a mandate again to to uh, an anti-racism mandate. Absolutely. Um, so you know they, they were all elected like in, in this wave of anti-Trump organizing yes um, and, and so yeah they they feel that they they do have this mandate and then um their base is very actively pro-palestinian yes 
through the presence of a lot of Palestine supporters in that anti-Trump movement, you know, with the with Muslim ban, with, uh, you know, Trump's embassy move to Jerusalem and a lot of, you know, I think Trump really, <laughs> he, he gave a lot of air to, you know, when, when he, he made Israel and uh, the U.S. like uh, the strongest of allies and, and he made himself like the um, messiah in some way, uh, people were like, what's going on here? You know, who, who who is this Israel that is that Trump is um, giving all his, um, yeah, like that Trump is endorsing and 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 benefiting in this way. Yeah, so I think that's why these um, Democrat senators t- took the opposite position of anything that Trump was doing, and, yes. and they're very. Uh, fiercely pro-Palestinian. So we're kind of approaching the end of our interview, but perhaps you mentioned earlier that you've written two articles. Maybe you would like to mention them by name so our listeners can go check them out. Have they been published yet? Uh, well, one of them is, um, it's not, It's kind of an article. It's more like a short call mm-hmm. to, to action. Um, and it's called... Um, Defending Sheikh Jarrah from within the Australian settler colony. Mm-hmm. I wrote for the Institute of Postcolonial Studies, mm-hmm. which is a local institute that um, also runs the Postcolonial Studies Journal. So this has gone into their newsletter, but it's also on their website. So we can link this um, to the podcast. and. Absolutely. The second article I'm writing about some of what we discussed in relation to anti-racism and the way that that's kind of um, been a, a way to platform Palestine solidarity. So we can link that in as well. Yes. And you also have an article that's coming up for Mangal Media in the future. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, if there is, uh, if you, if, if we have any listeners who are in Australia right now, perhaps you'd like to give them a heads up about what kind of activities you're planning in the coming days. Yes. So we have a protest tomorrow. So tomorrow is Saturday here. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah, that's going, we're expecting it to be quite a large demonstration. Um, and then on the 22nd, we also have uh, a protest 1 p.m. at the State Library. Um, and we've been organizing some petitions and statements to um, media organizations such as ABC, um, The Guardian, etc., which haven't been centering Palestinian perspectives, mm-hmm. especially at a time like this where they have the obligation to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's also BDS Australia that runs a number of really powerful campaigns, such as um, the, calling on the Australian DFAT to review trade deals mm-hmm. with Israel. Um, so DFAT, which is Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, is currently taking submissions into a trade deal with Israel. So kind of calling on pro-Palestinians to actually invest the time to submit something. 
Yes. Things like this. Yeah. Cool. Well, it was wonderful talking to you and uh, and uh, we will be keeping in touch if we'd like uh, if at any point maybe we we might want to do an update depending on where the situation is going. It would be like really great to do this again. Yeah, there's always lots to talk about. <laughs> lots to unpack. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Goodbye.